When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How does someone get appointed to the Supreme Court? What are the qualifications of a Supreme Court justice? And what are the responsibilities of someone in this role? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. The Supreme Court is the most powerful court in the United States. So it's a big deal when there's a vacancy and the president gets to nominate a new justice. And that's what we're talking about today. In January of 2022, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. And within days, people already started tossing around names of potential successors. Then on Friday, February 25th, President Biden nominated federal judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. But now what? How long does it typically take for a nomination and appointment process to play out? And what even makes someone qualified to be appointed to the Supreme Court? There are a lot of questions here to answer. And I do want to mention that if you want a refresher on what is a Supreme Court confirmation, you can go back and listen to my podcast with Chad Pergram. He covers it all. But today we have called in the anchor of Fox News at Night and the author of the upcoming book, The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak which is out for pre-order now at foxnewsbooks.com. Shannon Bream to go through how someone is appointed. Shannon, thanks so much for coming on. I love it. And I'm always happy to be back with you, Abby. You know, I, I've, I love having you on. You are just so kind and you know everything. So it's a blessing for me to be able to talk to you about this, especially because we're talking Supreme Court and it's an important topic for people to know right now. It is. I mean, it, it, and it's one bit of positive news for this administration that they can focus on at a very mm-hmm. difficult time, both domestically, internationally, to have this moment. Um, it, it is a bright spot for them. Definitely. So let's just start with the basics. How is someone appointed to the Supreme Court? Basically, if you think you want to do this, go to Harvard or Yale. That's the best Shoot, place I'm to already start, behind. I can tell you, because nearly everyone on the bench went to those <laughs> two schools. Uh, and that was an interesting thing is one of the finalists this time around had a much different education. She actually went to the University of South Carolina. And, you know, we thought, oh, how interesting it would be just to have somebody from a normal law school um, that is outside of the Ivy League. Uh, but this time, you know, the president did go with somebody who Judge Jackson went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard Law School, distinguished herself all along the way. So I think you have to be a pretty serious student early on if you think this is something you want to shoot for. Right. Oh, shoot. I, I already missed it. I thought one day I could be appointed to the Supreme Court, but I went to USC, but the one in Southern California. So, but you know what? If I become president, also highly unlikely, but I could choose you. Oh, Did you, you know you do that? have to be a lawyer to be appointed to the court? Wait, I love you that. don't? 
No, do you, if they think you're smart enough, there have been people, it's been a long time. They don't do it like in modern times, but back in the day, you didn't have to be a lawyer. You know, you could be maybe a senator or a governor or something else, or just a very well-respected person. Is there anyone? So it's never too late, Abby. There we go. And I'm, you know what? I'm holding on to these words. Thank God this is recorded because um, I now know when you are president, you'll right. at least consider me. I don't know if it's the You're best thing on the, the short list already. <laughs> I'm just going to pledge that right now. Perfect. So how is someone appointed then? To the Supreme Court because, you know, just get into that like a little bit more because, you know, you have the Mm -hmm. education, Harvard, Yale potentially. But um, what's the process like? I really do think a lot of folks who end up on these short lists, they're people who are going to bubble up through. I mean, she was also a Supreme Court clerk that puts you on the radar as well. She clerked for Justice Breyer, which I think is so cool that if she ends up replacing him, um, you know, he's mentored her all along the way through all these decades. So, you know, you get a clerkship with a top federal judge, Supreme Court, if you can score it, that's also something that gets you on the radar. But you kind of move in certain circles where people are keeping an eye on you. Um, You make a name for yourself. You try some different things. I mean, for her, she was a federal public defender at one point. She also got involved with her critics don't love this, but it definitely, you know, fills out her resume with something different is that she has taken on pro bono defense of Guantanamo Bay detainees. She served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. So I think, you know, you're you're writing, you're speaking, you're doing things that kind of keep you in these circles and on the radar of people who say, gosh, that person has an interesting life story. They've got sterling education credentials. They've done a federal clerkship. So I'm going to keep my eye on them. And she's always been on his shortlist. She was actually reportedly in the running uh, under President Obama uh, back when Justice Scalia died suddenly while he was still in office on the bench. So um, she has definitely been somebody that folks have been watching over the years as outstanding and best suited kind of for this sort of thing. Yeah, she definitely seems like it. And I'm interested to know also, you talk about these people and every obviously person who is on the Supreme Court right now, they have this long list of things that they've done in the past. What age, how long do you have to be doing those things to actually be considered? You know, I mean, she is 51 and that's considered young, which I love. Like on the Supreme Court, 51 is like spring chicken. (laughs) So, you know, you want to have a record. I mean, she was also so she sits on the D.C. Circuit, which is just that one step below the Supreme Court. Numerous Supreme Court justices have come from that specific court. So that's another thing. You angle towards that one. You end up there, confirmed there. You know you're at least in the running at that point. But before that, for several years, she was a district court judge, so the lowest level of federal court judge. So she's got a long record showing she's made decisions. She's worked with other judges. She's heard all kinds of different cases. So, I mean, I don't think somebody, no matter how amazing and brilliant they are, would be nominated to the Supreme Court in this day and age at 30 you know, I really do think you got to be like at least mid 40s before you're kind of um, in the in the running. And I love that because so much of what this world celebrates is being 25 and hot, which hey, <laughs> for a lot of jobs, that's important. But I love that for this intellectual, very demanding job where really the whole country is in your hands or only nine of you at a time. Um, it, it, we value wisdom and maturity and experience in the legal field. Right. I mean, to think about there are so few of them and a spot doesn't open up until someone retires, right? Or gets impeached or something like that. So it passes away. Yeah, it's so rare. I mean, some presidents get maybe one if they're lucky. Others, you know, like you think about President Trump having three. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's just all totally out of your hands as far as when you may get to do that. But it truly is 
I think when presidents say it's the most, one of the most important decisions they'll make in office, I don't think that's overstating it because this person could be on the bench for 40 years. You know, I mean, that actually happens all the time. So long after you are done being president, whether you have one term or two, this person is going to be there as part of your legacy and you want to get it right. So yeah, you're watching those federal judges along the way. You're keeping an eye on people coming up through the ranks, Um, you know, pieces that they write authors, you know, authoring these big academic pieces and law review pieces. Um, You're always tracking these people. And I think people who are headed toward this goal always have those things in mind and are constantly adding them to their resume along the way. Yeah. And President Biden, by the way, said that uh, when he announced her uh, as his nominee, he said this is the president. It's one of the most important decisions Mm -hmm. that they'll make. So if you are the president, what are you looking at? How are you deciding on who to nominate? We want all those things we talked about, the great education, the clerkships, time on the bench, if that's the path they've had. All of those things are amazing, but you're going to meet with them. And these personal interviews really make a huge difference. It's not just a piece of paper because the person you want to pick, you want to feel like they can build consensus. They can be persuasive. They can get things done without being a flamethrower because that's what you need on the court. You need somebody who can go in there that when they're struggling with these really huge decisions, big decisions that they can have the ear of somebody who is considered maybe on the other side of the bench from them. Um, You know, you've got people who are nominated by Democrats, people who are nominated by Republicans. We kind of separate them into a conservative wing, a liberal wing. I think we have sort of a couple swing votes in the middle right now, but you want to pick a justice, potential justice, who will be able to go in and have conversations and build relationships and persuade people. Um, You can have the smartest person in the world. They can be the Bait champion. They can be top of their class, valedictorian, everything else. But if they're super abrasive, and I'm not saying we never have justices like that, it's tougher for you to win people over. And so much of the Supreme Court is relationships. So I think smart presidents are also looking at that. You want somebody who is impeccable intellectually and academically, but you also want somebody who has the character that will fit there and be able to build bridges and build consensus to win over votes when you need them. Right. And I uh, I just want to point out really quickly, because I was so impressed by your reporting when that whole Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch mask situation happened and, and you <laughs> went and you found Masked. the story and exactly. But, but it makes me think when you say that the pick has to be someone who can go in and have conversations and, and do these things. It, it hit me that you know, they they kind of came out and said, we have a great relationship. Like mm-hmm. you guys have to stop creating issues where there's no issue. So, you know, when, when they're making these important decisions, it is crucial that they have good relationships. So, you know, that interview process, I could imagine, mm-hmm. is extremely important. Yeah. And, you know, pre-COVID, which changed everything, and hopefully we'll go back to the best things before mm-hmm. COVID, um, these justices had lunch together almost every day. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of rule. You don't talk about the cases. You can talk about what books you're reading, what your kids are doing, your grandkids, um, vacation you're going to take, a trip you've had. I mean, they would talk about all kinds of things and build their friendship. And you got to think these nine people are under incredible pressure. Nobody else on the planet can understand exactly what their lives are like. And you're there for life. And in some ways, you're kind of um, isolated because a lot of them won't do the cocktail party circuit. Some of them do, but some of them know the minute they're out in public and and with other people, they're going to be, you know, badgered about uh, legal issues, about a case they may hear. Um, And so I think for some, for some of them, they take great comfort in those relationships they have with each other. They're not all best friends, Mm -hmm. not saying there are never tensions because I know that happens too. 
Um, but they have each other's backs in a different way because it is such a very tight, small, exclusive group. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I'm sure Katanji Brown Jackson will fit in just fine as well. So it'll be it'll be fun to see her and, and how uh, what she does on the Supreme Court. Now, I am curious, though. Um, so she was introduced as Biden's Supreme Court pick. But now what needs to happen? What are the next so steps? She'll- Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. She she will now start this whole Senate confirmation process. And it always begins with these meetings one on one with any senator who will see her. And there's a former senator, um, Doug Jones, out of Alabama, who's the quote unquote Sherpa. He'll guide her through this process. And they usually pick uh, a former senator to do that. And so any senator who will meet with her, she will go to the Hill. She will go to their office, however this works, and they'll meet and they'll have a private conversation. And, you know, just like the president does not and should not, senator shouldn't say, here's a specific case. It's coming before the court. How are you going to vote? It's not that kind of conversation, but it is kind of probing their personality, their judicial philosophy, trying to get a sense of whether you think this person is qualified and a, a good fit for the court. So those meetings go on. It's it's kind of the charm offensive to get up there and um, really connect with these senators. I don't think she's going to have to worry about any Democrat votes unless something We've never heard about her before suddenly, you know, surfaces now and comes out because she's been vetted before, although the Supreme Court is different. We know it goes to a whole nother level. Um, so she'll do that. And then it goes to the the, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee and she'll go and have those famous hearings where she sits there and everybody gets their chance for two or three days at a time uh, to question her, to look into her background. People will go and testify for or against her, whether they think she's a good pick or not. Um, and they'll do a vote and then send it to the full Senate. So the hope, I think, is from the White House to get all of that done before Justice Breyer steps down, which will be end of June, 1st of July, somewhere in there when they end the term. And he said, you know, me stepping down is contingent on the next person being ready and nominated and good to go. So I think that this will play out um, all spring. And I, I think it's very possible she'll be in place by the time he's ready to step down in June. Does Justice Breyer get any say? I know that they kind of get to give their opinion, but, um, you know, how much pull does he have on who gets nominated? You know, he doesn't really um, because it's solely a, a, you know, a decision for the president. He may seek people's advice or counsel about who they think would be a strong contender, but then it's completely in the White House's hands. And I think a lot of times they want to make sure it doesn't look like the retiring justice is making a deal you know, Mm -hmm. or or giving a nod to or picking the next person. So I can't imagine the White House wouldn't have asked him his opinion on some of these people. They may not have. They may just know on standing on her own that she would have um, his endorsement because of how he's mentored her and chosen her as a clerk and all their time together over the years. But he gets no formal say in the process at all. It's really up to those senators. They're the only ones who have votes and nothing else matters, no matter how many critics come out of the woodwork, supporters, hmm. detractors, um, if she can hang strong. And I don't think this is going to be an ugly confirmation battle. I just don't because of the numbers in the Senate and um, because of her background and the fact that she passed the vote a year ago, less than a year ago to the seat she's on now with the Senate. Um, I just don't. I, I, my, and my hope is it won't be as abrasive and ugly as some have been in the past. Um, but I think that she's going to have um, a relatively peaceful process in getting to the bench that would be nice right uh, i mean we we're due for that we're we due <laughs> there had a few tough ones there have been some ugly ones in the past well i guess that that brings up a good point too you talk about this confirmation battle why is it that the speed in which a justice is appointed why why does that fluctuate 
You know what? I think it's all about the circumstances. You think about when Justice Ginsburg passed away somewhat suddenly. I mean, we we knew she'd been sick. We thought she was much better. I'd seen her on the bench. She seemed like, you know, she was faring well. Um, you know, d- President Trump was on a, a real tight timeline because mm-hmm. he needed to, if he was going to get that um, that seat filled before the election, that thing moved at lightning speed. Um, but when you have the luxury of, okay, we know Justice Breyer isn't going anywhere today. He is there. He's ready to stay through June, July. Then you have the kind of the luxury of time of her meeting with all these senators and the full vettings, the hearings, the you know the background checks, all those things. You just have more time to let it breathe. Um, but presidents are going to do what they have to do yeah. to get that seat filled if there's any way they can get the Senate to cooperate, which, as you know, at the end of um, President Obama's term was not the case with the opening created by Justice Scalia's death. Right. Is there anyone else besides the president who has an official say in who gets appointed or is it just solely the president who gets to I'm, I'm sure they you know ask for opinions, but mm-hmm. officially I speaking, mean, it's really him. And at the end of the day, it's got to be the person he connects with um, that he has a good meeting with. We've all had an off day. There are plenty of stories that we've known about nominees in the past who have come in after a surgery and they weren't at their best and and they didn't get the nod that time. But maybe the president brought them back for another time uh, and thought that they were better suited the next time around. They had an opening. Um, there are funny stories about that kind of thing because we all have a bad day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm having a, you know, halfway decent hair day today, but you always have a great hair day. President. He doesn't really care about the hair. Um, you know, you got to be firing on all cylinders and then it's really up to him. I, you know, I think he probably consulted with vice president Harris and other people that he trusts, certainly within his, his close circle. But when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter what they've suggested. He's got to go with his gut. He's had those interviews. He's got those resumes. He's got their judicial record if they've been on the bench and he's got to, weigh all of that against the political framework. What are our numbers in the Senate? Who do we have to win over? And I think it's such a complicated decision. Um, A lot of factors go into it, but then ultimately the president says, this is it. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What happens, I know uh, we kind of talked a little bit about how uh, when a a seat opens up, you know, it's they retire, someone unfortunately passes away, something like that. But what happens if there's uh, an impeachment or a a problem. How does that work? Ooh, well, you know, we saw this play out a couple of times during President Trump's um, his tenure, his term mm-hmm. um, that it's very involved. It's a big whole process and it's super, super rare. Um, and it has not happened anywhere in our lifetimes. Um, and I'm like two or three of your lifetimes, but has not happened mm-hmm. in mine either. Um, it, it's just a really complicated process. And then you would start over again. If there's actually a vote to oust that person um, impeached and convicted and kicked out. Um, and it would have to be something really terrible, you know, like bribery or killing somebody or something, you know, horrendous. Mm-hmm. Then you start over at ground zero again, whoever is the sitting president, doesn't matter who nominated or confirmed the person who gets impeached, that sitting president then has that opening and you'd start from square one again. Who's on my list? What do we do? Um, what is the political environment like? Do I have the votes in the Senate? Am I going to have to make a deal? Um, because I think that 
when presidents know they're going to need some votes from the opposite party, it makes a big difference in the in the person they ultimately pick. And what's crazy to me is that even a few decades ago, even when you think about Justice Scalia, um, Justice Ginsburg, people who were clearly you know, very far right or very far left, um, very um, staunch in the way that they saw the Constitution and viewed it and interpreted it, they had very distinct viewpoints about that. Even they were nominated with 80-something, 90-something votes mm-hmm. each. That's just not happening right now. So even in this um, day and age, um, everything has got to be calculated for a president in looking at the political makeup of the Senate when they're picking that person. Because I think the days of anybody getting through with 95 votes is probably over for good. Right. Which is unfortunate. It kind of speaks to like a current situation and the climate in our country. And you you do you want the you want the Supreme Court 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 to just be uh, something that we can trust in. Right. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we don't trust in the Supreme Court. I'm just saying that, you know, with with the current climate, it is a little bit more uh, contentious with who gets nominated and all that. And you want it you want it to be apolitical. And I think it's something that Chief Justice John Roberts is very sensitive to. Mm -hmm. Um, He doesn't want it to look like the court is making decisions based on being appointed by a Republican or a Democrat, but simply that they have the law and the facts in front of them and they make that specific decision. But it's tough because everything they do is viewed through the lens of does it benefit my party or the other party or, you know, the culture wars and things that are going on. Can we count on the court? Is the court with us? Is it with them? Um, I think both sides have a lot of those conversations. And it is unfortunate because I think these nominees really do um, want to join the court and protect it as an institution and be as apolitical as possible. But everybody who goes to the bench has got a specific viewpoint on how they see the law, the Constitution and these issues. A president is going to pick someone they think is most aligned with them, that they can get through the Senate when it comes to those important issues and viewpoints. So we can't expect that they go there um, without, you know, like robots, like they have no personal opinions or viewpoints on anything. Um, They're human beings. And the president who picks them wants them to be most aligned with his or her way that they see the world. Shannon, I'm glad that you brought up John Roberts. How is the chief justice selected? That is also something that the president does. Um, He will say um, this is the person who's going to be in charge. If that person steps down, they could elevate from within the court or they could decide that they're um, going to pick someone completely from outside. That's what happened with um, Chief Justice John Roberts. He was actually selected from the outside um, by President Bush, 43, and was, um, I I think, originally slated that he was just going to be another associate justice. And then Chief Justice Rehnquist passed away. So he was then nominated in the position of Chief Justice. So that's selection that the president makes. And um, they still go through the same process as you would for any Supreme Court justice. Um, But I think they get even more scrutiny if they know they're potentially taking the just the the bench and joining it as the new chief justice. Mm. Why is that just because they haven't been if they're coming from the outside, they haven't been on Mm -hmm. the court. And it's is that why? Right. And you think about the chief justice not only has to be this great intellect and able to handle all these really sticky, difficult um, decisions, but they also have to manage the court. It's very much an administrative thing, too. You got to keep the peace with everybody. You got to talk about how you're going to divvy up writing the opinions. Um, And the chief justice does all kinds of other things I don't think people know about. Like they actually have a position overseeing the Smithsonian Institute and museums in Washington. It's kind of a weird thing, but but they head up the, you know, the federal judiciary. They're responsible for all federal judges and what happens throughout the federal judiciary, not just the nine there on the bench. So it is something beyond just being a great intellect and jurist. 
it's also somebody who's got to manage a whole lot outside of that already very important job. Right. How long do they hold that position too? Is it, is it work the same it's way? It's for life. Okay. Yeah. It's any of these positions you get appointed and confirmed you are there for life. And there, listen, there are these critics who say um, it shouldn't be for life. It should be for a number of years that they should rotate off and on. There should be term limits. Um, you have heard all the conversations the last couple of years yeah. that have really heated up about, we're going to pack the bench. We're going to add more people or they should have term limits or you're out at 65 or, you know, any number of things. Um, but for now, until Congress decides they want to amend the constitution, hmm. which they haven't done um, in a long time when it comes to, um, you know, how many people sit on the Supreme court or how it works, um, no one can just walk up and say, okay, we now have 15 justices uh, or something's going to be different. I mean, it's a very lengthy process to change that. And we've had justices, um, the late Justice Ginsburg and even Justice Breyer, who will soon step down to say, let's not mess with the number. Nine is a good number. We think it works. And they've really pushed back even against Democrats and people on the left the last couple of years who've introduced legislation who have said, we're going to remake the court. Um, you've got justices who are Democratic appointees and nominees who said, no, don't mess with the court. You're only going to make it look political. Yeah. Do you think obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but do you ever think that we will see a different rule when it comes to the term limits that they're allowed to hold? You know, it would be a huge national conversation. I think you'd, you'd have to really convince people that it was the best thing in the world. For now, we trust the justices to make uh, decisions about whether they are physically and mentally fit enough to be there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are always those critics who say, listen, over time, there's some who should have gone before they did. They weren't really up to snuff with some of their <laughs> final opinions and things. Um, but we kind of have this honor system and trust that they will do it. Some of the justices have said, listen, I have really close friends on the court. I've said to another justice or two, if you think I'm losing a step, if you think I'm not up to it, come to me, like come to me and let's have that conversation because I don't want to hurt the court. I don't want to hurt the institution of the court and I don't want to make a bad decision. So some of them, I think, have sort of those gentlemen's agreements, if you want to call that, or gentle ladies agreements. Like <laughs> we look out for each other. And if we see we're slipping, that we'll be honest with each other. Yeah. But for now, it would take something monumental to change that. So I don't see it happening anytime soon. I mean, we the court does everything so incrementally, like right now we get the audio live feed from them because of covid. And for a long time, they were doing arguments with all of them in their own homes or offices remotely. So just dialing in by phone. That's something we have pushed for for so long that we would have live audio from the court. And it met with tons of resistance every time we tried for it. So. Um, if there's any silver lining, COVID, I think, has at least given people more of a view. If you want to listen to the arguments and know what goes on there, it's very illuminating, I think, for people to listen in, as we found during the you know arguments over the COVID mandates. Um, cameras, that's a whole nother fight. I think they're going to fight that tooth and nail. But for now, at least we have the audio and we'll see if they keep it post-COVID. And I hope there's a post-COVID coming soon. Oh, gosh. You and me both. I hope. One, one of these days, <laughs> uh, God willing. Uh, Shannon, you've been you've been covering the Supreme Court for a while. And, you know, I actually I was on a shoot and I had a photog and he told me a story about you and, and um, just kind of what uh -oh. you all had to do back before. I mean, it's such a private thing, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. so can, do you have any uh, stories? crazy. Do you have any stories that you could share about your experience covering the Supreme Court and how you get that information once there is a ruling what do you do if you're anchoring and there's this big this decision is so it, this is so crazy so in the olden days which i mean pre-covid pre-pc pre-covid <laughs> pre days um it was old school you would be there and you'd be at the court and there's an office inside where they physically hand out uh the papers the the opinion and you run 
you run as fast as you possibly can out around across that big marble plaza to to the camera and you're trying, you can't really read the opinion while you're running because you're busting it. You want to be first, <laughs> but you also are trying to figure out. And one of the best tricks I ever got was from um, our former colleague, Greta um, Sustern, who told me, she said, turn to the descent. That actually is the best clue you get because you know who's ticked off and who lost the case. And, mm. and that was such a good clue. That is a good way to do it too. So we used to do that. Then they started to release the opinions online at the same time that you could get them in print form. So then you have a decision. Do you want to be logged onto your computer standing there in front of the court, holding up your laptop in the blazing June sun, trying to figure this out, or do you want to run it out? So for a while I kept running them myself. And then when I almost bit it on a a very important day and had visions of knocking my front teeth out, um, I started a little internal competition where if people want to run it out, I literally make them come like interview with me. Um, And I say like, okay, this is not like you're wearing your cute, like Kate Spade flats. Like I need you in Nike airs. Like you're going to be full on running. Don't wear a cute outfit. Be respectful. You got to look good for the court, but I need you to bust a move, you know? (laughs) And so then it gets into this big competition every year where people now record it and they video it. They put it on the late show, whatever. Um, But now we're back to this weird thing with COVID where they don't hand you those um, printed copies the way that they used to. Uh, The opinions are released online. So now we're all kind of sitting at our keyboard going, refresh, 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 refresh while you're sitting in front of the camera. And that's how we do it now. I hope we go back to the days at some point of where we do both and you do have people grabbing it and running outside. That's not going to happen this year unless something radically changes in the next couple of months. But I hope we get back to that. Me too. And if you ever need a runner, I have long legs. (gasps) And so I would love love to come and be your runner. I, I got to tell you, my fall. assistant that I had, um, Anna, I have a fabulous assistant, Tessa now, but Anna was before her. She went, and got married, has a beautiful little boy oh. and has a life. Um, she's not just running on command out of the Supreme Court anymore. <laughs> but the thing I loved about her, she was a D1 athlete. You know the drill. Like yeah. she was seriously freaking competitive. And I knew it would kill her if anyone beat her at oh, this yeah, thing. You can't let anyone I knew beat she you. was hungry. Hungry like a wolf. I knew that she was going to be first out that door and I was going to have. So the years of Anna are kind of, you know, um, they're mythological at this point because (laughs) she was willing to get the job done and there was no wearing cute outfits or flats. It was, you know, running shoes, prepared to go first place every time. Your prerequisite is that you had to run track in college. (laughs) Yeah. Or be a D1 athlete of any kind or be a psycho competitor like me where you hate to lose at anything. That's who I need running out that door. So when someone hands you the papers, then you're live on air Mm -hmm. reading through it. What, how do you make sure you don't make a mistake? I mean, that's, that's pretty Um, monumental. Sometimes you do make a mistake and that's really not fun. Uh, But you try your darndest to say, give me, give me a minute or two. It's one thing if we're first, but we got to get this right. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that little trek that Greta taught me about turning to the dissent is very helpful. But the thing is so much of what the Supreme Court does is you don't always get opinions that are like five voted this way, four voted this way. You'll get three voted for this, four voted for this, three voted for this concurrence and joined and some joined the dissent and the concurrence. Like it's, it's bonkers. So trying to get through those opinions is very difficult. Um, there is a little summary at the beginning of the opinions that's not written by the court, but it is prepared by somebody within the court, not the justices. So you read that and you trust that they've got it right. And if that's usually maybe two or three pages, and that gives you a good overview of kind of who won, who lost. Um, but sometimes if you've got a two or 300 page opinion, you're going to be able to get maybe a couple top lines, but to get the real guts of the opinion and what it really means, 
you know, sometimes you got to wait till the dust settles and you can sit down after that initial live hit and the adrenaline of that and really read the thing and figure it out. Mm-hmm. I love that you said it's old school, too. I mean, just when you think about the traditions of the court and the traditions of our country and the Constitution and things like that, my mind actually mm-hmm. goes to, you know, they all wear black robes. Why is that? Mm-hmm. You know what? I do think that's just tradition. I mean, all the federal judges do it at every level. And it's funny because, um, you know, there are companies that sell like the judicial robes, but there's some of the justices are like, hey, it's cheaper if you just go to like the church choir supply place. (laughs) It's still a black robe and it looks good and nobody knows it's a lot cheaper. Um, And you do occasionally see some of the female justices where, you know, Justice Ginsburg was very famous for these beautiful collars that she would wear and people would send them to her. They were beaded or crocheted or those kinds of things. Um, You know, the men generally have on a a tie under there, a suit and a tie. Um, You see a little bit more flair from the females, Um, you know, and Justice Rehnquist, whether you loved him or were detractor, he got a lot of attention for for putting the little stripes that he actually had sewn onto his robe when he was chief justice. Some people thought that was weird. Some people were like, hey, cool. Um, But most of them just, you know, it's basic. It's black. They show up, they do their thing and they don't want to draw a lot of attention to that. Yeah. You can go to a local high school and see if they have any extra graduation robes and then you're good. To exactly. Go. <laughs> if it fits, you can get it over your little suit and tie or your dress exactly. or whatever you're wearing that day. Good for you. Uh, Shannon, I don't want to keep you much longer, so I'll, I'll wrap it up with this last question. Just to recap, in your opinion, what do you think are the qualities that make the best Supreme Court justice? I think it's not that you've just got to be a cut above intellectually. You've got to have um, the special gift, I think, to be able to really parse exceptionally, exceptionally difficult um, topics and laws. You've got to have something beyond that. I think it's a wisdom, a discernment also to be wise like King Solomon, I think, to be able Mm -hmm. to find the right solution with a lot of pressure coming on you from a number of different places. But I think it's also that personality, somebody who can build bridges, build consensus, win votes, put together coalition. So I think it's a really tough combination. And I do believe this country is blessed to have, um, you know, a good crop of people who can do just that. Absolutely. Well, I'm definitely not qualified. So when you're president, I'm going to remove my name from your shortlist after oh, having no, this conversation. At least give me a chance to interview I'll, you. I'll start. I'll start studying. How's that? If not, I'm gonna, my fallback <laughs> is to be your runner. OK, and I know you can nail it. I have no doubt. <laughs> Perfect. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Abby. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about getting appointed to the Supreme Court. Number one, it's really up to the president to nominate a Supreme Court justice when there's a vacancy. From there, the Senate votes to confirm the nominee, which requires a simple majority. This way, both the executive and legislative branches of the federal government have a say in the process. Number two. The president also nominates the chief justice. The president could elevate someone within the court or bring that person in from the outside. Now, the chief justice also holds that position for life, but very much has an administrative job in divvying up and writing the opinions and even has a position overseeing the Smithsonian Museums. And number three. 
I asked Shannon what qualities make for the best justices. And I'm actually going to use her words here because she puts it perfectly. She said, not only do you have to be a cut above intellectually, but you also have this special gift to parse exceptionally difficult topics and laws. She said, it's a wisdom, a discernment to find the right solution. And it's also about that personality. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast on how you get appointed to be on the Supreme Court. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.